With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Have you ever wanted to possess knowledge about the psychology of video games in book form? Good news. I've written a book about how those who make games and those who sell them use psychology to shape our behavior, manipulate our beliefs, and rig our purchasing decisions. It's called Getting Gamers, the Psychology of Video Games and Their Impact on the People Who Play Them, published by Roman and Littlefield. You can go right now to psychologyofgames.com slash book to find out more. Each chapter in the book examines scientific research on psychology, behavioral science, and decision-making to answer questions like, why do normal people become raving lunatics online? Why are fanboys and fangirls so ready for a fight? How do games get us to grind and chase after achievements? How do mobile games get you with in-app purchases and microtransactions? Do video games make you smarter? And many more questions that I bet you've pondered at one time or another. I'm a bit biased here, but I'm going to go ahead and say that this is a pretty awesome book. If you like this podcast or the articles on my website, you're going to enjoy it. Once again, search for Getting Gamers on your favorite online bookseller or go to psychologyofgames.com book for links and more information. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Psychology Games Podcast, where you learn about how psychology and video games interact to shape our behaviors, our beliefs, and our purchasing decisions. My name is Jamie Madigan, a psychology PhD and a lifelong gamer. I write, podcast, and lecture about this stuff on psychologyofgames.com, and I'll be your host. One of my favorite gaming podcasts is the Giant Bombcast, found over at giantbomb.com. Honestly, I don't know why you're not listening to it right now instead of whatever this is that I'm doing. Regardless, on the July 28, 2015 episode, Jeff and Brad, two of the Bombcast crew, were talking about the online multiplayer game Dota 2. And normally I tune out when they do this, but something they started discussing piqued my interest. How much further do you think they can go with the hats and the skins? I don't know. Like all the, that I, other stuff? That's Jeff kicking off a discussion about the extent to which cosmetic items that players can buy, skins, armor, weapons, pets, couriers, that kind of stuff, might affect the integrity of the game and interfere with players' abilities to see what they're up against at a glance. When split seconds of reaction times count, you need to be able to instantly identify your foe. If you're the game developer, this puts some boundaries up around how much you should allow players to customize the appearance of their avatars. Alright, I'm gonna go ahead and warn you right now that the Bombcast guys play things a little bit blue, so in a few seconds you're gonna hear more cursing than you normally do on this podcast. Just in case you're using it as a teaching aid in a middle school classroom or the Association of Professional Pearl Clutchers or something. If everything isn't recognizable. In that case, then I would probably say allow players the ability to turn off cosmetics mm. for other players in the game. I bet a so lot of people would really hate that idea. If it was just like, I don't want to see your fucking bullshit glowing bullshit. I want to see the silhouette that I know. If people couldn't know that they were forcing you to see their bullshit glowing bullshit, mm. they would be really upset. Yep. Yeah. So... Even if avatar customization sometimes comes into conflict with game design and the integrity of whatever tone or lore that the developer is going for, the answer can't be as simple as removing the cosmetic items, or even just making it so that you can see what your cosmetic items are, but other players see the vanilla version of your avatar. As Brad says, if you're going to pay $35 for an item, you'll want to know that other people are going to see it. People love their fancy pants, sometimes literally, and they love knowing that other people can see them. Why? We like being fashionable. We like looking cool. At least I do, some of the time. I still play a lot of the online competitive shooter Team Fortress 2, and I absolutely have spent real money in a Valve store to buy cosmetic 
hats, animations, and decorations. Because my pyro looks wicked fabulous with a glowing blue skull, a devil tail, and the ghost of a monkey cosmonaut trailing after him. There's something smugly satisfying about equipping something on your avatar and knowing that other people may look at it and think it's slick. And just like real life, the more rare or expensive a fashion accessory is, the more it's supposed to convey status. And of course, this leads us to the topic of envy. Why did I buy that ghost of a monkey cosmonaut in Team Fortress 2? Because I saw another player who had it, and I got jealous. He had it, I thought it was cool, I wanted to have it too. Me, the guy who's supposed to be an expert on all these psychological levers, and I still fell for it. Sure, paying money to support something you like is good, but let's be clear. I love that ghostly purple monkey and I wanted to start around with my own. But you don't have to look just at cosmetic items to see how envy drives the behaviors of gamers. In any massively multiplayer online game, there are markers of progress and status that any new player may see and desire for themselves. Someday. Big armor sets, exotic mounts, special abilities, achievements, even just bigger numbers on the character stat screen. These can all be objects of upward social comparisons that result in envy. And just about any bit of social comparison information might elicit envy or admiration. Seeing friends ahead of you on the leaderboards, seeing their achievements or trophy data, seeing them beat your high score, seeing them finish a game you're struggling with, even seeing them own a better computer or console that you can't afford. These are all fuels for emotional fires. But what are the outcomes of envy? How does it impact player behavior? Is it the same thing as simple admiration, or is it different? And under what conditions might players with cool stuff actually be looked down upon? Does the way that they get their cool stuff matter? Like, for example, if they paid cash for something that you earned through skill or dedication? What happens then? Well... What you see is that typically people really respect gamers who bought uh, the tank in this case less. They would like to cooperate less with them in other games. They they think they also have lower sort of in-game status and these type of things. So the... In every episode of this podcast, I interview an expert on the overlap between psychology and video games. In just a few seconds, we're going to hear from a researcher who has looked at what Envy does in the context of consumer behavior, including video game microtransactions and in-game purchases. But first, this. Okay, okay, by law, I have a few seconds now to tell you about my Patreon campaign. Patreon.com is a system that allows people like you to support this podcast and the website by donating as little as a dollar or two a month. This helps me pay for stuff I need to do the podcast and write the articles and keep all that going. Plus, you get some Patreon-only benefits like early access to podcasts and access to audio versions of articles. So go to patreon.com slash POG, that's for Psychology of Games, to get more information. Okay, we're done. All right, everybody, thanks for joining me again on this part of the podcast, the interview section in which we will talk with Niels van de Ven, who's a researcher, been doing a lot of really interesting research lately and in the last few years around a topic that I think is of interest to all of us. So, Niels... Who are you and what are you doing here? Well, thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm, um, what I'm doing here is I hope I can tell you a bit about my, my work on Envy, on microtransactions in computer games. I'm an uh, assistant professor at Tilburg University in the Netherlands. So I teach, I um, do research, and that's sort of the main thing that I fill my day with. So you've done research in the past, at least I've read a lot of the stuff that you've done around Envy and those different kinds of uh, related emotions and you know envy is one of one of those probably universal emotions that i imagine all of us have have felt the weight of envy at some point in our lives you know whether it's something that someone else has done or something that they have or some lucky break that they got uh can you tell us a little bit about what psychologists know and what psychologists study about envy especially from like a consumer behavior perspective yeah now envy is, is to me one of the emotions that's that's really interesting to study because um, all emotions have a certain function. They, they help you reach a certain goal or do something. So we become angry because someone is blocking our goals and the anger helps to go against this. And the question for me, and I think for many researchers is, what is now really the, the function of envy? So why do we experience envy? To whom do we experience it? And I think that's the, the basic question that we try to answer in psychology. 
to go a bit deeper in and what what we know so far is that that up till a few years ago, the main idea about envy has always been really negative. And uh, that goes way back even before psychology. If you think uh, uh, the early days of the, the Bible, um, uh, envy is one of the seven deadly sins. It was even in one of the Ten Commandments, uh, thou shalt not envy thy, thy neighbor. And that made the same list as, <laughs> as you shall not kill. So apparently it has always been something that people found really interesting, really important, but also really negative. Yeah, it's definitely viewed as a vice rather than something that allows us to get through our day or make sense of the world. Yeah, and, and rightfully so. There's so many research in psychology and economics that, that also can show a bit of the negative aspects. People are willing to give up a few uh, euro or dollar of themselves if they can take away even more from someone that they're really envious at. So there is a real strong negative aspect to envy, at least there can be. But more recently, we, uh, especially but also other research, have been studying whether envy can also be a bit more motivating, that uh, exactly the, the, the frustration that you feel in envy that somebody else is better off than you are can also lead you to, to try to improve yourself and do better or buy things or uh, these type of things. Tell me a little bit about that. I know that you, along with some of your colleagues, did some research on what you called the envy premium. Um, and I think it was like you induced envy in some people about an iPhone and like actually got them to think, to change how they think about it and, and how much they wanted it. Can you kind of walk me through that research? Yeah, that, that was, it's been a while ago that it was actually the start of, of the iPhones arriving in the, in the Netherlands. So they had just been out in, in the US. The, the bus was of course great about what the iPhones could do. We thought that this would be an, a really a product that would elicit, be able to elicit envy in other people. That if someone would have this, other people would certainly think that they would be better off. So one of the things we did is we had a, um, a student describe that they had this new iPhone and explaining all the features that you could tilt the screen and that it would, would then also tilt, which was amazing at the time. Um, and so he, he really explained all those things in the hope that it would elicit envy. And we, we try to focus on those two types of envy that, that I talked a bit about before. So the, the more destructive type of envy and the more positive that, that would make you want to have it as well. So what we found is that if you are able to trigger that benign type of envy, uh, so the more positive form of envy, then people were actually willing to pay more for such an iPhone themselves as well. Okay. So how much more? Um, I have to go back in my memory, but I think that they, they indicated on their scale how much would you be willing to, I think it was about 80 euros or something. So about maybe a hundred dollars at the time. That's, that's a lot. And, but it's, yeah, <laughs> that, that would definitely be a lot. Whether it really translates to behavior is always then the second question, but at least for us as psychologists, we're often interested in finding the difference between conditions. We sometimes pay a bit too little attention to the true effects it all has. But um, yeah, I agree. That would that was a lot. So walk me through, let me make sure I understand the difference between sort of the benign and the malicious envy. Like what, what triggers one kind or the other? Yeah, that's a good question. And that's, I think, also something that, that we need to do more research on. But one of the key things that I found in the early days was that, or in the early days when I'm talking about five years ago, but in my research career, that's that's already the early days. Mm -hmm. um, but what I found is that the perception of deservedness matter a lot. So if you think it's deserved that the other person is better off than you are, then you typically get more of the benign envy that motivates you. And when it's more undeserved that the other person has their advantage, then you get more the, the malicious type of envy. So for example, in the iPhone research, what we did is we had the student who had this nice iPhone. They, he described that he either deserved this by, or bought this by, by working really hard to be able to buy one. So working extra hours and doing extra things to be able to buy one. So participants also thought that was more deserved. And in the other condition, the student said, oh, this is one of those things that my father typically buys for me. Ah. So that made it relatively underserved to our students and, and elicited a lot more malicious envy. Yeah, I think we've all been there. There was there was a kid in my high school whose dad owned a car lot. And this kid always had like the newest sports car, uh, the newest nice car, like Literally every few weeks he'd come in. And uh, so, yeah, I think I have a sense of what you're talking about with the malicious envy since uh, <laughs> I, I really I saw what he had. I didn't think he deserved it. And I wanted him I wanted him to not have it more than I wanted me to have something similar or equivalent. 
exactly no and i think that's that's a very good example and it's also um it's also good to realize that everybody is maliciously envious at one time or another i think if if at that time I would have asked you whether you would be maliciously envious. I don't think you would have said that you were. You would probably feel righteously angry or something. But I think if you take a bit more distance from your own behavior, you do realize that it's likely to have been envy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's one of the difficulties we sometimes have in studying envy, that people don't really like to admit that they experience it. Yeah, the social desirability problem. They want to admit it. It's 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 difficult, but still, still I find... That, it, that occurs regularly. And actually, this is the social desirability is also one reason why I started studying this positive type of envy. Because when I when I was studying at the US, in the US, I realized that people at times would say that they were envious of someone else. And I thought in the Netherlands, people would never, never, ever say that to, to uh, somebody else. Hmm. And I realized that this is the case because then the Dutch language actually has two words for envy. So one is is that the most used word is really, really malicious envy. So I thought I would never say, hey, I'm afgunstig, which is a D- Dutch word, because that would in- imply the, the really bad envy. So I realized that English only has the one word that actually signals both types of envy. And I think maybe this is also one reason why it has been understudied for a while in the, in, uh, the positive type of envy, because because there is only one word for it in English. Yeah, that's interesting. So, I mean, in, in English, it might be some the difference between saying or feeling petty envy, you know, over, over something that you really shouldn't feel envious about or it's not fair to judge that person in that way. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, and I think Russian uses black envy and white envy. Huh. So there are many more languages that actually have two words, but there are also languages that, that found other ways to describe the two types of envy. Uh, um, so, so yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a distinction that is useful and, and practical around the world because so many languages found two words for it. And just because we have to string words together doesn't mean that the concepts aren't distinct psychologically and, and they're different mental states. Yeah, exactly. So there are also languages where, for example, the word shame and guilt are lumped together into one word. But that doesn't mean that these are not distinct experiences. So what about what about you've been calling it the good type of envy, the benign envy? Why why is it good? Why would you use that word to describe it? I I, I sometimes hesitate myself to use that word as well because it is really a, still a frustrating experience. So it is a a negative experience. It's not it's not that it's admiration. Admiration feels really positive. So it is still the negative feeling, but it at least it doesn't lead to more positive motivations. It it makes you want to improve your situation. So basically, as we come back to the function of envy, the, the frustration arises because somebody else is better off than you are. And you can level that difference by either pulling down the other person and, and restoring the balance, or you could do so by moving up yourself, by improving yourself. And I think at, le- at in comparison, at least, the latter is definitely the more positive and more good type of envy. Yeah, a lot of the stuff that I've read about social comparison theory talks, even if it doesn't use the language of envy, it talks about how will make upward comparisons that are motivating and they might be more so to the extent that that person is similar to us or we think that we can do what they have done. Does that play into envy or the research that you've done in any way? Yeah, some recent research that, that I'm doing fits exactly with this. So, so basically already in envy, we knew that that more similar situations really lead to more envy uh, in domains that are important to us. So we really envy I would envy the colleague who has a great idea, but not the colleague who wins first prize at a dog show, right? You really have to find something important to to trigger envy. Uh, but we now also find that the more people think, ooh, that could have been me, the more they are envious. So it's really this this comparison with the situation, what it could have been uh, to what it is that, that triggers this envy. So that makes me think of like silver medal winners at the Olympics or, or some other sporting event. Yeah, uh, that's that's research by Tom Kilovich, who I've uh, worked with when I was in the U.S. as well, and that's just fantastic research. That the silver medalists typically are the least happy on that stage. The the, the bronze medal winners are happy because at least they were the best of the rest, uh, and the silver medal is really comparing upward to the person standing at the highest spot. Yeah, the the person that won bronze is looking at the people who didn't get any medal at all, and they're thinking that was almost me, but the you're right. The silver medal winner is looking at the person who won gold and thought, I could have been the best of the best. You know, I could have been the one that, that gets all the accolades. So close, yet so far. 
So I, I see a lot of parallels and applications to the world of video games and, and all this stuff that we've been talking about. You know, there's often thoughts about um, people who, especially in like massively multiplayer games, people who play all day or really any kind of game, you know, they play all day, they grind, they have the awesome equipment or the, the great kill death ratio just because they don't have a life. Or you assume that because they, because you're a bit envious. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, the, the accusation may be entirely false or entirely wrong, but that's still the way that we feel. We, we sort of search out reasons why that person is better or better off other than, you know, than they deserved it or they earned it or they're naturally talented. With the rise of these types of multiplayer games that involve social comparisons and then in-game transactions and purchases where people can, you know, instead of grinding for things, they can just buy things in a marketplace or, you know, through a, a storefront in the game. I'm seeing all these comparisons and usually have attitudes that come out, you know, towards people who do that. So where are some of the, the ways that you typically see Envy show up in, in video games? Are, are you a, a big gamer? Do you play a lot of games? I'm, I'm, I'm definitely a casual gamer. I like to play some games and at times a bit more than others. And uh, uh, and typically I try to avoid the massive multiplayer games because they, they can either suck me in too much or I get a bit annoyed by the, <laughs> these these type of processes. Um, but uh, but for example, I, I I also in in some some uh, spare time I would play Hearthstone until I got really upset by. In, in the beginning of such a game, I typically come along quite well until the other player starts to hit a few epic cards after each other mm-hmm. that I uh, yeah that I didn't have the time to grind for or have the money to buy uh, for. So then then you sort of can get lost in that game or at least get detached from that game because you feel that you're losing because I should either spend so much more time or so much more money on the game that I start disliking the game a bit more. Yeah, that was largely my experience with Hearthstone as well. I played my first actual multiplayer match against another human. I was doing really well, and I had them down to like one or two health. And then like whatever card combo or synergy they were building towards came into effect, and I went from full health to zero in like just a few hands. And it was it was really off putting. And I haven't gone back. I haven't gone back since, but maybe I should. And then the the, the synergy thing can also be great play right if you if you do everything right or the but but being hit by three epic cards in a row which is yeah you have to grind pretty long to be able to get those or buy them and get lucky no exactly so that's but then still you need to spend quite a bit of money and but i think also in other games if i talk to a few nephews who play uh uh, many of those games the concept of kill steals i think is also typically something where envy comes in right it's really annoying if somebody else takes a kill and and takes all the experience points yeah, but i also think it's a way to when you are envious you see kill seals everywhere um so i think likely that some of those are accurate that people are annoying and waiting and and just waiting to grab the experience points but i also think that people overestimate typically their own contribution and then don't think it's fair and uh, become envious when somebody else makes the kill well, that's interesting. So being in a state of envy can bias you towards perceiving or overestimating the frequency of, of unfair events? or So already if you feel that it's undeserved, it becomes more of the malicious envy and then you want to pull down the other. So by accusing them of guilt steals, that's, that's I think also a way of pulling down the other. And um, and I think this is also what sometimes makes envy so difficult. We we typically overestimate ourselves. If you if you ask people whether they are a above average driver, then about eighty or ninety percent of people thinks they do better than the average driver. So we we typically in many cases overestimate our our own input, our own capabilities. And I think in many of those games, people would overestimate how much they contributed to the actual kill, and all think that they deserved killing that final uh, putting that final blow in. Walk me through the research that the, the recent paper that um, that you, Ellen Evers, and Weida, who I don't know the first name of that person. Doris. Okay, the, yeah, that you all did about this this whole concept of paying for advantages in games. You know what what I call the pay to win button. You know where you might instead of like we were saying grinding out 
to get that high level character, the high level avatar, those awesome epic cards, you are able to just go in and pay money. So you guys, you guys did a really interesting study where you looked at like, what's the impact of this on people who engage in those activities or are perceived to do that? Yeah, so we use typically survey methods to to study how gamers perceive the use of microtransactions. So that was sort of the, the starting point. And and Doris Veda at the time was a, a master's student who wanted to to do nice research in this. I thought it was was an excellent area to um to study envy or or envy related effects in. And Ella Avers is a colleague who's now at Berkeley who uh who is a really a, a more thorough gamer than I am. So she was also a great addition to this team. What we really wanted to see is how people respond to those those microtransactions because we felt that they they often are so perceived to be undeserved um, that they should do something with gaming motivation or at least with, with how people see these other players. So we thought, let's just start with how people perceive other players who use microtransactions to get ahead. And there was surprisingly little in this. There is so so few research, scientific research out there on games that that yeah, this was really something that that we felt needed to be done. And it's such a huge industry too. I mean, there's there's millions of dollars or equivalent being thrown around. Yeah, and I I'm surprised. I, I, there are specialty journals for for things like tourism, for um, for service management, for so why not for um, and and there are some journals on games, but they typically tend to be a bit more uh, game culture oriented. So also about storylines in games, how people. Uh, like to be certain avatars or how that reflects on themselves and i think these are all really valuable and interesting but i i miss sort of more the empirical research on i think that the marketing side or the the psych- yeah, psychological side on those games and so this is what really triggered us to to go ahead with that yeah, the whole consumer psychology angle of like, why do people buy things or why do they buy one thing over another? How do they perceive other people who do that? Um, it's really untapped. You're right. Most of the, the psychology the stuff that's being published is around like education, gamification, violence, addiction, those types of things, which are all important topics. But things like this are being underserved. Yeah, I, I think I think it's because science is a bit slow in adapting also to new things. So. Um, there are certain research groups out there who study aggressiveness, and then they see um, games as a as a good tool to study aggressiveness. And hardly anybody is out there who that are research groups out there who want to study the the functions of games and what they do to players and what they more from the the gaming angle itself. And I think that's that's a a shame because there, I think there's much to be gained there. Yeah. So so what exactly did you do in this research, and what did you find? So we we asked uh, we went to various fora to to ask gamers from uh, a few games uh, Maple Story World of Tanks and Diablo to answer a number of questions on how they would how they perceived other gamers using microtransactions. So we we, we use what we call vignette uh, studies or scenario studies, but we ask them to imagine being in a certain situation uh, and then respond to questions on it. So for example, in World of Tanks. We imagined that they they had just had this big battle between their team and another team. They were the last team, uh, last player left from their own team, and there was one other enemy left. And that other enemy had a tank that you can only buy with actual money, or a tank that you can only sort of grind for, or at least normally grind for. Uh, and then we just checked whether people uh, responded differently to losing from someone who had bought a tank or who had earned it through normal gameplay. And what you see is that typically people really respect gamers who bought uh, the tank in this case less. They would like to cooperate less with them in other games. They they think they also have lower sort of in-game status and these type of things. So the, I think that's the the main thing that people really yeah disrespected dislikes other gamers from doing so and interestingly also for diablo for example we we made a, a situation where the other player was actually in your own team so even then players disliked having someone in their team so effectively making their team stronger uh, so they disliked them from from using microtransactions so you had these people they were faced with the idea of somebody else either on their team or in other games not on their team 
who paid for in-game advantages. And we're not we're not talking about cosmetic items here, right? We're not talking about a particle effect on their weapon or a hat or a skin on their tank. It's things that actually make them better or more effective at the game, right? Yeah, and that and that was I think an important addition for us because there was some research out there, or at least some some theories out there that people would dislike microtransactions because they would, what they call, break the magic circle. So games form this magic world where outside influences from the real world should not be able to enter. So people thought that that's the reason why people dislike microtransactions. But what we find is that they, they don't really care if people buy these ornamental items, that like a vanity pet or whatever in a, a World of Warcraft. It doesn't, if, if people use it to make their character unique or stand out, they don't really care. It's only the, the, the becoming better uh, aspect that people dislike from those microtransactions. And did you find anything around whether or not people would be interested in bettering themselves to, to try to get the same benefit that that other person had? Yeah, I think in, in one of the studies, we, we also found that people really became tempted themselves. To, so we asked them, would you become tempted yourself to um to uh to buy something to, with real money and i think that's a that's a if anything this should be a starting point also for new research do people become more tempted to to buy more um um when they see other players buy more and i think I, i'm i'm pretty positive that that there should be game designers out there who who are sitting on data that that could test this because this this would be now I find that in at least in one of those studies that people say that they do this, but this would be, of course, really important to know whether this actually happens. We find that at least there are some negative aspects of these microtransactions. So I would be really interested to see whether could we also document, at least from a game designer perspective, also these positive aspects that people actually are willing to pay more when they also are confronted with others who pay more. Yeah, there's got to be data out there or possible to get it. Just looking at were you in a match with someone who had one of these cosmetic or in-game benefit items and then, you know, looking at those types of people versus people who were not exposed to that type of situation. Did one spend more money or did one go to the store more often than the other? Yeah, no, those things would be great, and I'm, I'm not so so simple. Yeah, and and but so simple with huge amounts of data that <laughs> that are complex to analyze. But but true, and I and I'm I'm not against microtransactions, but but I do think that that also when I when I read your blog or other places, people start to become a bit fed up with microtransactions that are really felt that they are used to to suck you in the game and that 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 are really become too much designed to grab you and i think if if we would know more about what is acceptable to people and what not we could create a better user experience we could create better games that that people wouldn't mind paying for without the negative side effects now when you say suck you into the game or or get you like like what do you mean can you give me some examples no, so I think maybe Hearthstone would be one of those those good examples where you like the game, you get into the game a bit, and then you get beaten time and time again by by players who are better than you, where you know that you should really play hours, and then not just hours, but hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours to be able to get those those cards, and that tempts to to buy stuff there, but you also feel that you are being um, sucked into that. I think World of Tanks is also a, to me at least, a game where it takes so much grinding that you sort of have to pay to to get in there. And people don't mind paying because if you like a game, it's it's no problem to pay something a month or a, a fixed fee or whatever. Yeah, like World World of Tanks is a free-to-play game, so it's free to to play and to download and play in that case. But but when you get in there, it's it's it you have to sort of at least that that's what I so I might be mistaken. So correct me if I'm wrong, but you sort of have to to be able to. I read somewhere that I think within a week your paint job of your tank gets is is gone again. So you would have to pay again to to get a new tank job for your tank that it looks nice and. So th there are games that are, I think are known to try to, I, I would rather pay a bit for World of Tanks than feel that they, they're trying to squeeze money out of me from, from every angle. I think where most people start to object is when a game would do something like, like the game becomes difficult to the point where you can't proceed without buying a power up. 
Yeah, no, I agree. And I think I, I also never mind that I'm able to say play three levels for free. And then if I want to continue, you have to pay. I That that seems like a, I, I get a chance to try whether I like the game and then I have to choose whether I, I like to pay for eh, all the effort that game designers put into it. So I, I agree. And I think that's where all of the, so I also think that, that our, our research into these social comparisons also help to figure out when, what people would like more and less. So I think that the more something buys you an advantage, the more people will dislike it. So I think that things like golden ammo in World of Tanks that, that allow you to shoot easier through armor, that's something that really gives an advantage that people will find undeserved. But paying to, for example, gain experience points a bit faster, then at least you have to still work for it. So people would think that is more deserved, I think. So I think that, that playing around with those things and how much things are seen as, as buying an advantage and how much you still need effort, that, I think that's, that will greatly influence user experience. So you did the research that said that people tend to look down on those who buy those kind of advantages and they, they don't want them on their team as much and they respect people who earned uh, what they have more. Uh, but this was all sort of survey-based self-report in response to like a vignette or a situation that was described to them. If you were designing like a follow-up study, you know, to look at these same sort of concepts uh, and you had, let's say, a nice fat budget, like what sort of study would you design? Um, I don't think I would start doing lab experiments. I, I, what I would ideally start doing then is A-B testing. So um uh, on on websites, we, we create A-B tests with uh, your shopping basket at Amazon or whatever. You, you show two people two different versions of the same shopping basket and just see in which of those two they're less likely to remove items from. And I think such A-B testing is something that I would then ideally do in games. So try to figure out if we could sort of send one update uh, to half of the people, another update to the other half of the people and see whether they respond differently to in-game things. Um, so I think that would be sort of the main thing that I would like to try. So maybe hit them with like special offer and, and see if one group responds to it differently at a, or at a different rate. Yeah, and, I, and I'm, I bet that many of the game developers out there are actually doing these type of things. They, they this is the, Oh, I know they are. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is the way you, you try to progress. And But ideally I would... I think but they may not be trying to manipulate envy in service of understanding that concept better and its impact. So I would I would try to um, come up with examples or with tests that I think would trigger this deservedness. That if, if we could find ways that make it seem more deserved that somebody who buys something uh, gets an advantage, I think that would help conversion rates, but also get user experience for the, the people who are not buying it. So I think that would be one thing. I think changing from malicious to benign envy, uh, recent research shows that that tie strength. So if you like other players more, that's a that's an important aspect. If the more you get players to focus on the object and not on the other player, that also helps to trigger more benign or malicious envy. So for example, if somebody else uh, gets a better grade than you in school, the more you focus on the grade, the more it becomes benign envy and the more you focus on the person getting the grade, it becomes malicious envy. So maybe there are ways we could use these insights to use microtransactions both in a more effective way and in a way that makes gamers who are not buying it um, feel better about themselves anyway. That sounds good to me. I do that article. <laughs> that would be great. No, so, so there are, I think, many things out there that we could do. And I think also, I'm also very open to to being able to test things in existing data where I'm sure if I would talk to, to people with that data, we could come up with interesting hypotheses that could be tested with existing dating as it is. Uh, Ella Avers, um, a co-author, has great work on, on what she calls set completion. So that if you have four things out of a set of armor, for example, it's the fifth thing that you really want. And she has studied this with, with marbles, with uh, atlases of uh, all the continents in the world. Um, but I think also her insights from psychology would be could be so valuable for games. And, and I think the data, again, there is also out there. And in, I think that's the case with much of psychology. We have so many ideas about what people care about, what they... Um, yeah, how they, they are likely to behave and feel that that could all feed very well into game design. 
one of the the other things that I was thinking about if if this is a lot of this is about sort of bringing that person's social status down. So, you know, the research you talked about social status and that person was lower, but they thought they were higher. So there seems to be this drive to want to kind of bring the status of the person down to a more, you know, greater equilibrium. Um, you know, you could look at things like uh, what was said to the player in chat or over voice chat or messages sent. You could look at the rate at which people uh, were asked to be added to friends lists and and that sort of stuff that could be, you know, real life consequences or behavioral examples of what people do in response to feeling, you know, that malicious or benign end. Yeah, I, I fully agree. And I think, but the, the thing is, of course, that this is what makes it so difficult that in many of those games, buying the better items will help you to level up and become of a higher level. And you would typically get a better in-game status. But what we also know from psychology is if that, that sort of status hierarchy is fair and stable, people really assign greater status to those who do better. But if the perception is there that the status hierarchy is instable because you can buy your way in or undeservedly or they could things happen that make it undeserved, then the entire status hierarchy of the game is instable and you're not sure whether you should give high status to higher level players. And I think that's also something that higher level players will dislike because if eh, if everybody blames them for be, for buying things when they're actually just great players, that's also annoying to the better players. Yeah, so you see a lot of game developers almost hide the fact that something was bought or earned and they you know they don't make it real transparent most of the time. And I think that that's also one thing that that could be interesting for follow up if if I look at our data, we we really find that if you ask gamers would you want it to be visible that um, that that a player used microtransactions? What you really see is that you have three groups of players. There's one group who's really against making it visible that someone used microtransactions. There's one group that really, really wants this to be the case. And there's one group that's really neutral in, in <laughs> I really don't care. So And, and they are about one-third of the sample, all, all three of those. In two studies, we found this. And, and interestingly, this is independent of whether they use microtransactions themselves. So I, I would have expected that it would especially be those using microtransactions that wouldn't want it visible, but that's really not the case. So just across all players, uh, some really don't want it to be visible, some really want it to be visible, and one group really doesn't care at all. How can game developers best make use of envy uh, of either type or any, any flavor to sell stuff to players or to keep them playing the game, keep them invested in the game. And then at the same time, how can players protect themselves from being manipulated that way? Or, or how can they make sure that they're approaching the game on their own terms? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I think for game designers, one one thing to, to ask first is, do you really want to trigger the envy? I think it's often a side effect of other things that you need in a game. You, you need... Uh, performance differences in a game because else it typically isn't that interesting. Um, but envy is a frustrating experience. So, so my take is that that envy has to exist because of other things you need in the game. But if it exists, you try to make it more of the positive type. So try to make it more of the deserved type of envy. Try to uh, make people still like the person who was better off. Have them focus on not exactly this person, but on what they achieved. So on the accomplishment. I think all of those things can really help to to turn it into a more positive type of envy. So I think that's the first thing. For gamers themselves, I think, first of all, envy is a signal. So you only experience it in things that are important to you. So if you feel it, apparently what the other is accomplishing at that time is important to you. So that's at least a valuable signal. So if the other is gaining levels, you realize that you're really trying to gain levels. If the other is getting stuff, you realize that getting stuff is important to you and these type of things. But also that I, if you focus more on your mastery goals, so trying to become better at the game, I'm also pretty convinced that you would have less envy. If you don't care as much about doing better than other players, but just becoming better yourself, it that also serves as a buffer. If you, if you felt like you played the perfect Hearthstone game, it doesn't matter that much if you got beaten by another Epic card uh, in, in one of the final turns. So I think focusing on mastery uh, would really help. And I think a final point is that we should realize that people often deserve their success a bit more than we think they do. So we often feel that we invested more than other players, we, we, that we spend more time, or, but we forget that 
that they play hard as well. They spend a lot of time as well. So I think we should just realize that other people often deserve their success as well. And that would also help getting to the right type of envy. Yeah, and sometimes they're simply more talented than you are. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I fully agree. And, and I think in most games that I'm playing, almost everyone's more talented than. Well, I didn't mean you specifically. <laughs> I meant us in general. No, I, I fully agree, and I think that's that's a. Uh, we should realize, and then in all those games, there are great players out there, and um, but it's so often and so easy and so self-protective to assume that they beat you because they bought something. And I think this, again, it helps where if we focus a bit more on mastery and our own improvement of the game and what can we do to, to improve ourselves, um, that would help, I think, the most. So one, one last question. Let me ask about a little thought experiment that uh, I heard about recently. So there's like a, this game called Dota 2. And it, it's if you've heard of it, it's a, a MOBA game. So it's, it's multiplayer, it's online competitive, five players versus a team of another five players. And it's a free-to-play game, and they make a lot of their money by selling cosmetic items. Um, so hats, skins, that type of stuff. What do you think in that sort of situation would happen, or how would players react if the game developers just removed all the cosmetic items? Like maybe you could still see it on your player, but you knew that other players were no longer seeing it. How do you think players would react to that? Uh, players would hate that. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure they would hate that. No, the idea, I think... In these cases, it's not about your own aesthetics. It's it's it. Maybe you like the game. Maybe you you like choosing red for your character, so it stands out a bit more, and you can more easily find it. So there could be functional advantages of doing it. But I think in most of those cases, it's you get invested in the game. You really like the game. Uh, the character becomes sort of part of who you are in the game, and you would like that person, that character, to to reflect their own identity. You don't want to be the 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 tent wizard all of them looking the same you want to be a bit special i think and that for games that that people would play that much i think that that would not be a smart move so it's not just the envy component but it's more of the the autonomy and the the customization and and imbuing some sense of identity into that avatar yeah i i think so and i think that this is another area where psychology would have so much to offer that People always have this this struggle between fitting in and standing out. They they really want to belong to a group of people, but they also want to be seen as a unique person in that group. And I think in a game like this, being able to have your own unique identity would, would really help players feel better in that game as well. couple then things to close out, the questions I kind of always ask all my guests. Uh, first one is, have you been playing anything lately? I've I've just started playing uh, Europa Universalis 4. It's more a real-time strategy, historical, so it's sort of civilization, but more more real uh, and more sometimes also bad things happening to you. Uh, it, it's more difficult to conquer the world, but it's nicer to have the little goals of crushing one neighbor. <laughs> sometimes it is the little pleasures in life. I, how are you liking it? I, I have only started playing it... Uh, Quite recently, I just also had a third little girl, so I have a bit less time playing games than uh, than I used to have. Yeah, yeah, I've been there twice myself. Uh, the turn-based games are good for that because you can just drop them at any time exactly. and, and do, do what you need to do. If I recall about that game, it can be very involved, though, like... You like a game of that can take a long time, a large number of turns. Yeah, no, but I, I, I actually like that in those games that you also have some time. Maybe that's also my, my scientific side that sometimes it's good to put it aside and think a bit about what a good next move would be. I think I'll enjoy it. Yeah, I've been playing a game that's actually somewhat relevant to the discussions we've been having called Rocket League. And it's it's basically soccer or football with cars. So instead of a person, you're you're a rocket-powered car, and it shoot around and knock, try to knock the ball into the goal. And other, it's a multiplayer game, so you're playing against other people trying to to do the opposite. And it's just really high energy, and it's they've dialed in the controls just perfectly. It really clicks, and once you learn the basics, you know you can get in there and start contributing to your to your team. And it's usually small teams of three versus three or or two v two, and uh, they have a lot of cosmetic options for your car so different paint jobs and decals and and like actual like hats you know your car is wearing like a, a little hat uh 
around and uh, exhaust and all these different things, but they don't currently let you buy that stuff right now. It's all stuff that you get either randomly or I think some of it may be tied to certain achievements within the game. Um, but I've heard rumors that they're going to be patching in uh, microtransactions to that. So I don't know how I feel about that. I kind of like the purity of it right now where it's just, you know, you see somebody when they drive down the field leaving a stream of bubbles you know behind their car and it's kind of funny and it's it's kind of cool and uh, I, I enjoy the game a lot i'd recommend it to anybody that wants to check it out no and, and i can see how that would work and but i i wouldn't mind paying for games and i wouldn't wouldn't mind paying for options but i i also get your sentiment that it's it's also so nice to sort of have the, the old game system where it's just earning and and also the, the entire game structure is based on you have to earn it and there there's no need for shortcuts or there's no, uh, as you mentioned, some games are just designed to become too difficult at a certain point where you just have to buy something. I'm I'm very favorable of, of using microtransactions of game developers actually making money on their games, but I'm also hoping that we should be able to find ways that do that not too uh, intrusively. Yeah, well, it takes people experimenting and paying attention and measuring things. So it's good to see the work that you and your colleagues are doing as, as good examples of that. So last question is, if somebody were interested in finding out more about you and the research that you've done, where would they go on the internet to do that? They can go to my site at uh, yeah, Niels van der Ven uh, in Dutch, uh, .nl. Uh, that's uh, the Dutch uh, end. Or you can just Google me at uh, Niels van der Ven. It's N-I-E-L-S-V-A-N-D-E-V-E-N, correct? That's correct. And uh, the, the paper that we've been discussing so far is now in press and it's also, uh, uh, it is an open access paper. So it's available for everyone to read if they like to. It is scientific, but it, I promise you that it won't be too difficult. Uh, but also my other Envy work is online. And, uh, and there's also more, I think if you type my name and with news or something, you, you should also find some some written text on the things I'm doing that could be interesting. Yeah. Great. And I'll, I'll include links to all that with the blog post that goes up with this episode of the podcast as well. So people should be able to find it. All right. Well, thanks so much for the time. A lot of great discussion. I think I feel like we could keep going. And, and I feel like I say that to every one of my guests, every episode, and it's always true. It's, but it's so nice to see that you're really interested, invested in the topic, but you're also, so you, your your background also helps to to go a bit deeper than a typical conversation would go. And I think that also helps. Yeah, that's that's the role that I, I'm trying to take on. Thanks for reaching the end of another Psychology of Games podcast. If you enjoyed this, or heck, even if you didn't, here's a few things you can do at psychologyofgames.com slash podcast that cost you nothing but will help me out a lot. Find the link to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or your other podcatcher of choice. Or you can just search for Psychology of Games in whatever you use to manage your podcast. Follow the link to iTunes and give me a rating or review. This helps get the podcast promoted on iTunes and brings in lots of new listeners. Follow me on Twitter, Facebook, or RSS, which will get you notified when a new article or a podcast gets posted. And, of course, you can kick a dollar or more my way via Patreon. The link to patreon.com slash POG is there as well. So thanks again, and I will see you next episode.